Most 21st century Americans don't have a good grasp of ancient Middle Eastern geography. Yet, we can clearly see that most of the Old Testament takes place in the Syrian wilderness. But how are we to understand this geographical information? In today's podcast, we'll see how the Syrian wilderness reinforces our previous theme, shepherdism, and how it urges us to trust in God's instruction rather than human civilization or philosophy. The bottom line, it's in the Syrian wilderness, away from the corrupting influence of humanity, that the shepherd gives his word so that we can walk the way. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. We began our overview of Scripture by looking at some major themes. The first couple of themes come from Father Paul Tarazi's Rise of Scripture, and the first one was shepherdism. One listener had a good question. If shepherdism is the ideal model in Scripture, are we sheep? The answer is yes and no. I think shepherdism works both ways. On the one hand, we are to be like shepherds out in the field who depend on God, rather than on cities, walls, kings, armies, etc., for human life to flourish. In this perspective, we are, in some ways, like sheep. We are to heed the instruction given to us by the ultimate shepherd, Christ. This ensures that we inherit life in the age by walking the way. But, on the other hand, shepherds are also leaders who care for their flock and give instruction. From this perspective, it's a model for leadership— We are called to repeat what we've learned from Scripture so that others can also survive out in the pastures. So this theme of shepherdism is both a model where we learn dependence, if you want to think of sheep, that's fine, and we also learn how to pass on the word that God has given us. This actually leads us very nicely to today's theme, the Syrian wilderness and the oases. The second Old Testament theme that Father Paul Tarazi emphasizes in his book, The Rise of Scripture, is the theme of the Syrian wilderness. The geographic location of the biblical story is important because it conveys specific information to the reader, information that tells us what is happening and what the characters are actually up to and how God cares for his people. A great example of this comes from the New Testament. In a world where paper and ink are very expensive, the New Testament authors would be disinclined to write information that the reader doesn't need. So if they wrote something down, it must be important and not superfluous information. Yet, time and time again, the authors of the Gospels tell us where Jesus is. For example, in Mark chapter 5, it says that Jesus went to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Most of us may think that this is just a historical side note, but the attentive reader will see that Mark is trying to tell you that Jesus' ministry includes non-Judeans. The other side of the sea is symbolic of the Mediterranean, and the Gerasenes is pagan territory. In other words, Mark is showing his reader how the good news isn't limited to Palestine and how it should be carried out into the Roman world. But if the reader is not attentive to the geography of the story, these sorts of details would be missed. 
So what is the geographic setting of the Old Testament, and why is it important? Well, let's take a look. There's a few places in Scripture where the borders of the Promised Land are defined, places such as Numbers 34, 2 Samuel 8, 1 Chronicles 18, and Ezekiel 48. If you take a close look at those passages and spend the time to find these ancient locations on a map, the message is clear. The earth of the promise, that is, scriptural Canaan, is coextensive with Aram, that is to say, the Syrian wilderness. This area goes from the Negev, or southern Palestine, in the south, and stretches to the north, all the way to the Euphrates, passing through Damascus and Hamath. First Chronicles makes it clear that even the Syrians were a part of David's kingdom, First Chronicles 18. And then Solomon undertook a building project in that land. Here's what Second Chronicles 8 says. Solomon went to Hamath, Zobah, and captured it. He built Tadmor in the wilderness and all the storage towns he built in Hamath. He also built Upper Beth Horon and Lower Beth Horon, fortified cities with walls, gates, and bars, and Baalath, as well as all of Solomon's storage towns and all the towns for his chariots, the towns for his cavalry, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, in all the land of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of Israel, from their descendants who were still left in the land whom the people of Israel had not destroyed. These Solomon conscripted for forced labor, as is still the case today. So it's clear that the Old Testament authors spent some time to make sure we understand the geographic setting, but what's the implication? In short, the Syrian wilderness is a geographic way of bringing shepherdism alive for the readers of Scripture. As I mentioned in the previous podcast, the Bible envisions the ideal life through what we've called shepherdism, and shepherds primarily live out in the wilderness. Shepherdism is always to be understood in contrast to cities, walls, armies, and kings. Shepherdism is a sharp no to human institutions that rely on consumerist greed and pride, which in turn leads to violence, murder, and war. So the Syrian wilderness is a sign that points us, or reminds us, that we are under the care of God. Remember, humans, when left to our own devices, seek to put ourselves first. The human, in our philosophical and political traditions, become the reference point for morality and values. But this leads to death. By reminding us that these stories are taking place in the Syrian wilderness, the Bible is poetically turning us away from trusting in our own philosophy to trusting in God's instruction. After all, in the Syrian wilderness, there are no man-made structures to take shelter in. There are no man-made aqueducts to bring you water or irrigate your fields. The stuff needed for the preservation of life is provided by God and by God only. So if our reference isn't our human philosophy or politics, then it has to be God's word, which is an instruction that tells us we must care for the least of these, our neighbors who also live in the wilderness with us. The implication is that the land doesn't belong to this tribe or that tribe. Since it's open territory, the tribes must learn to get along in order to survive. And if they're under the authority of Scripture, they have no choice but to look after one another. 
which sharply flattens the curve of violence and conflict. Dr. Nikolai Roddy, in his foreword to The Rise of Scripture, puts it beautifully. Shepherdism represents the most natural social relationship imaginable. Such a model is the great leveler that restores the dignity and true state of created humanity, binding human beings together in the barren wilderness of authentic human existence in obedience to and under the care of the ultimate shepherd, the God of Scripture. This is an image of different peoples with different cultures, all inhabiting this Syrian wilderness. Everyone has access to the land in order to allow their flocks to graze. They live in harmony as they go from oasis to oasis. The oasis, which can only exist in a wilderness, you don't find them in the middle of cities, for example, is a sign of God's care for everyone who is living in the wilderness under the obedience of his instruction. On the practical level, the oasis is a place where one can find water, but it's not like an ocean or a large river, which can be very dangerous. Everyone needs water to survive, but water, from a literary point of view, can also represent chaos and destruction. For example, in the beginning, one of the first things that God does is create a dome in the midst of the waters, which separates the waters from the waters. Is an image of God conquering chaos and organizing it in such a way that he can sustain life. If this isn't done, then water can be a mode of destruction. Just think of Noah's flood or the Red Sea that destroyed all of Pharaoh's army. Even baptism is an image of destructive waters that puts us to death so that we can be born anew. However, in a wilderness oasis, one doesn't need to worry about floods or destruction. There's water there for sure, but only enough to sustain life, not destroy it. While water sustains physical life in the physical Syrian wilderness, Scripture uses this imagery to hammer home one of its most important points. Peace in the wilderness of life comes by following the Word of God. God's instruction, in other words, is the living water of the oasis. Those who drink from it will not thirst again. And this living water is given in the oasis of the wilderness. It does not come from man-made philosophy. Just listen to how God's word blesses Abraham and commands him to wander through the wilderness. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abraham took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. That's Genesis 12. Abraham heard God's call. He had to heed God's instruction and trust that God would sustain him as he wandered to the promised land. It's the same with the Hebrews after fleeing Egypt. They too are in a wilderness when God gives them his instruction and makes them his people. Here's Exodus 19. On the third new moon after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. 
Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Even some of the great prophets are in the wilderness of exile when God speaks to them. Here's the calling of Ezekiel. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the river Kebar, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to the priest Ezekiel, son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kebar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. This theme of God giving his instruction in the wilderness flows right through to the New Testament. Listen to Matthew 4. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sit in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. Clearly, Matthew is showing us that Jesus comes to them from the wilderness. Matthew continues, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, the disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them. The Syrian wilderness is always connected to living under obedience of the scriptural God. Now, if you're still not quite convinced, Father Paul gives us one last example that comes from an examination of the Hebrew language. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that is most often used to refer to an arid or deserted area, that is, a wilderness, is midbar. Father Paul points out that midbar has the same root as the word dabar, which means to speak. This root is the dbr sounds that make up the two words. This means that there's a close relationship between these two words, God speaks, dabar, in the wilderness, middabar. Most impressive, perhaps, according to Father Paul, is the Song of Solomon. Here, wisdom, or God's instruction, is envisioned as a beautiful bride, and Solomon is singing her praises. In chapter 4, Solomon says, Your lips are like a crimson thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. The word for lips has that same DBR root, and of course, words come from lips. But also notice that within the same verse, the cheeks are described as pomegranates, which should remind us of an oasis in the wilderness. 
So the simple verse connects the idea of dabar, words, and midbar, the wilderness, through the visual imagery of lips and cheeks as pomegranates. Remember that the beloved that Solomon is praising here is a personification of God's wisdom, his word and instruction. If we pull back and look at the context of that verse, we'll see that God's word is completely described using wilderness imagery, thus making a strong connection between God's word and the wilderness. It's actually very impressive. How beautiful are you, my love, how very beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them is bereaved. Your lips are like a crimson thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in courses. On it hang a thousand bucklers, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that feed among the lilies. A garden locked is my sister, my bride, a garden locked, a fountain sealed. A garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. That Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, 12, and 15 through 16. God's word is the beloved being described here, but her description is cloaked in wilderness imagery. There's flocks, pomegranates, fawns, gazelles, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams. Father Paul's point is that the biblical Hebrew ingeniously used the same root for word and wilderness to connect them. Father Paul concludes, The words of God have always to be heard from the perspective of their place of origin, in the wilderness of Egypt or that of the nations. It couldn't be clearer. It's in the Syrian wilderness, away from the corrupting influence of civilization, that the shepherd gives his word so that we can walk the way. Thank you for joining us. I'll be back next week with another episode of The Way, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network.